The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Wednesday, October 8th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Jacksonville Jaguars who took the hap out of happiness and put it into hapless, their football team. They need whatever edge they can get. So they have a mascot, a pudgy jaguar named Jackson DeVille. He looks a little too much like Chester Cheetah, for my taste. Carried a sign meant to psych out the Pittsburgh Steelers and their fans who always wave those little yellow towels. So you can't fault the guy, right? Well, maybe you could when you see that the sign said, Towels Carry Ebola. So right now in the studio is Josh Levine. Hello, Josh. Hey, Mike. Josh is the executive editor of Slate. He is my co-panelist on the Slate Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen. He's in town for this live show we're doing tonight. And we're going to play one question, one question only. Josh, I know you listen to the show and you're familiar with this format. Very familiar. All right. Josh, we turn to mascots for ribaldry. We prize their nonconformity, their, dare I say, irreverence. Why did Jackson DeVille's antics so very badly fail to amuse? Well, I expect more from an anthropomorphic jungle cat when it comes to insult comedy. I think he failed on one metric. He was insulting, so he got that part. Insult. All right, so insult comedy, if you're building this, you got insult. The joke didn't land because Ebola is not particularly relevant to the Steelers or to towels or to the color yellow. Some people would say too soon. You know, Gilbert Gottfried with his 9-11 joke. Some people cried too soon. I was not one of those. I thought that it was, you know, we need to laugh about anything. There can be a good Ebola joke. There could be a good joke about anything. But this was just all insult, no comedy. Jackson DeVille, I think, needs to learn from Gilbert Gottfried, past gist guest. Maybe he could have some sort of seminar. Yeah. Because I think there is a lot of potential there. I agree. I also think that Jackson DeVille could also learn from Strobe Talbot. Another path, just another path, just guess. <laughs> Thank you, Josh Levine. In the show today, the spiel will be about races, statewide races in Texas. Guess who's going to win? Well, it's been the same party for 20 years. But first, a musical that's taking Broadway, or at least off-Broadway by storm, as the source material is taking our skin by storm. When you lie So we're listening to a song from the musical Bedbugs, three exclamation points. And there really should be three exclamation points here because, I mean, it's a great cast. It's a funny show. But there are three performers in this show. Usually you'd be lucky to have just one. But the woman who plays the lead, the man who plays the head bed bug, and the performer who plays a Celine Dion character just blow you away with every performance. So joining me now is Paul Leshen, the composer uh, of Bedbugs, Fred Sauter, who wrote the book and lyrics to Bedbugs. And also I'm joined by Brooke Burrell, who is a bedbug expert. 
In fact, she has just written a book. It's coming out soon. It is called Infested. How many exclamations on that? None. Um, I should have. I should have. I think you need at least one. They could loan you one. one. (laughs) Hello, hello, Paul. Hello, Fred. Hello. Hello, Mike. Did the idea, what came first? Let's do a musical about the bed bugs or let's, we have some great music. What could we uh, graft this onto? What idea could we graft it well, onto? We had just met and we, uh, we wanted to write a short piece to see if we were compatible working with each other. And Fred had recently gotten over a really awful case of scabies. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so he, he suggested that we write about that. And I think I was just horribly disgusted by the idea. But I, I like do... the idea of anthropomorphizing <laughs> things that have not been done before. Yeah, as right. do I. <laughs> so if you were like an English sailor, we might have been experiencing scurvy, the musical. Exactly. Like, whatever your mm-hmm. affliction was, we'd be listening to mm-hmm. that musical. Okay. Yeah. So he said to you, let's do, or you said to him, let's do scabies, I, I... let's do something itchy and on the skin. Yeah, I, I figured that at, at the time in 2007, that's that's kind of when the proto-bedbug infestation was happening in the city. So I had a friend who had to leave his apartment and nobody knew what was going on. They didn't know how to treat it at the time. It just seemed like a very interesting and topical topic to so cover. Paul pitches to Fred, let's do bed bugs. Fred says, well, that's not a story. What does Fred say? I said, that sounds interesting. And we did some research on it. And we just thought it was fascinating that these creatures had been mostly eradicated from America, from the Western world in the 40s and 50s with DDT and other treatments and that they're coming back and it was like wow the power of nature is so incredible and there was something there that i think intrigued us and then we began writing the story we wrote it basically in one night wow from the very germination kind of pardon the pun was it going to be a sci-fi thing oh yeah yeah definitely and the best sci-fi always plays upon our anxieties, you know, mm-hmm. UFOs and fear of outsiders. I mean, this mm-hmm. is exactly zombies and, you know, people can make the case if you want to count vampires, vampires and all these commotions in the blood like AIDS. I mean, this is great sci-fi because bedbugs are our anxiety. And it's New York mm-hmm. sci-fi. Yeah, you know, these, yeah. these are problems that New Yorkers have experienced in the past 25 years very close hand, you know, between the AIDS epidemic and then fast forwarding through 9-11 and anthrax. We experience this kind of anxiety every five years or so somehow. So this is not just an annoyance or this is not just even a rational annoyance or a, a wrecker of one's life. For instance, producer Andrew Salenzi can no longer live in her home because of bedbugs. Psychologically, they get under our skin, too. Why is that, Brooke? I think it's especially because they attack us in this area that's like our sanctuary. We sleep is so important to us. And no matter how bad of a day you have, going back to your bedroom and having some sort of, you know, protected space from the rest of the world, they come out when you're sleeping, they bite you, you don't necessarily know at first what's happening because they're coming out and then going back into hiding. Uh, We also, you know, we fear insects, we fear, fear infestations, we fear disease, we don't like these kinds of things. Um, bed bugs themselves aren't known to actually spread disease, uh, but there is a huge psychological burden that comes along with having a bed bug infestation. And Fred, you knew that, you at least intuited that, and I see evidence of what she's talking about in the show. She basically just paraphrased something that the main character <laughs> says in the first act, where she talks about, yeah. Is there a vampire component too? Are people more freaked yeah, out about I mean, having their blood sucked than they are being stung? Well, it's interesting because. Think about mosquitoes or other vector, like insect vectors that spread uh, bloodborne diseases, insectborne diseases. Um, you normally aren't afraid. Like if you have a mosquito flying around, you slap it away and you aren't thinking West Nile virus or malaria usually. 
um, even if you're sometimes in the regions where those diseases occur. There's something about bed bugs that we actually hate more than those other blood-sucking insects. And I don't know. I think it has to do with the bed and the psychology of that and that being your space and not wanting it to be invaded. Fred, do you think people want to laugh about this as a release valve? Absolutely. A lot of people have actually had bed bugs who have seen the show in any incarnation back from when we first did it in Nymph in 2008 have always said that it was cathartic and they really enjoyed it. So They were still creeped out by actual bed bugs, but they loved <laughs> what we did with it. So there is a Celine Dion character cleverly named... Dion Salon. D- Dion Salon. <laughs> Something about bed bugs remind you of Celine Dion or... I think there's two sort of reasons we put her in there. What are those reasons? (laughs) I forget. It it seems random, but one of the reasons was because, you know, she, after like Katrina, Mm -hmm. which was around the time when we were starting writing this, you know, she had responded on Larry King Live about wanting to make a, a donation of money to the victims. And there was something about that. And I mean, it's... It's really sweet and sincere, but there was also sort of comical because she's crying and she's over the top about it. And I think that tied in with the, this epidemic. I think that might have been the in. Yeah, and then and besides a fascination with, with big diva female pop stars and my desire to write real songs for them that should be in the world but are not and are slightly more ridiculous. Hello, my friends. I'm so happy you all come here. Together we can heal and learn and find a way perhaps to defeat these monsters. This first song I dedicate to my dear husband Dexter, who has always been there for me. Sometimes you hurt me, desert me, invert me. Sometimes you just make me sad. Sometimes you use me, abuse me, confuse me. Sometimes you just make me mad. But if I had to live without you, So from a scientific perspective, Brooke, what do you think of the show? I loved it. I actually saw it two years ago when it was off off Broadway, and then I saw it again a few weeks ago with my husband, and it was really interesting to see the different choices they'd made there. But uh, for the most part, I mean, I think I actually write about the play or the musical in my book. It opens one of my chapters, and I think I called it scientific-ish. Like, you know, they're telling a story, and... Some of those, you're not going there to get facts about bed bugs necessarily and how right. to like clean up uh, an infestation. But some of the themes there I thought were really interesting as far as uh, us continually trying to develop new pesticides to treat bed bugs. This happens with all the pests that we try and control. They grow resistant to them. It's a little bit different than them turning into six foot tall monsters sure. that like, you know, <laughs> suck people dry and kill them and do all these other gnarly things to them. But it is this theme that we see. And I also thought the, uh, the idea of creating, you have this character that, that's trying to create this natural uh, pesticide in order to, you know, save the planet and get rid of the bed bugs. And I don't know if I'm going to give something away with this or not, but it does, doesn't end up working as well as he thinks it's going to. And that's actually the case with most of the natural products you see on the market as right. well. Any little bit of science, Brooke, that was in the show that you said, huh, they got that right? I thought it was funny when uh, Carly is developing this new pesticide and she's throwing in pyrethroids, which are that's actually the, the main insecticide that we're allowed to use in bedrooms on 
bedbugs right now. They're actually really resistant to it. But I, I heard that pyrethroids and then she was throwing in this other funny stuff like rotten coconut peel or something like that. But there were little things like that that I thought were, were interesting. I loved having uh, the Rachel Carson sort of theme in there uh, and the DDT and Silent Spring. Fred, was there anything in your research of the science that sparked something that we see in the show? Um... Yes. Okay. Um, the traumatic insemination. Definitely. That w- I was thinking. And so <laughs> let's let's pause for a second and hear this song <laughs> called "He Pierced Me," <laughs> which is uh, how bed bugs uh, make love. <laughs> Did they get that right? Yeah, well, the so the piercing thing, the, uh, yeah, no problem. I've, I've written extensively on this kind of embarrassing. <laughs> of course night. you have. Um, traumatic insemination is how bed bugs mate, and the males basically have uh, this the equivalent of an analog of a penis, and it's like a hypodermic needle, basically. They stab it not into the... So the females have genitals, and that's how they like lay their eggs. Those are fully functional. But the males actually stab this needle-like appendage into their body cavity. And then they ejaculate into their bodies, and then the sperm kind of makes its way uh, to the reproductive organs. So that's that's all true, and that's pretty gnarly and gross. Is and it painful for the female? Well, so the female, interestingly enough, has actually evolved her own organ called the uh, spermalege. That's a real word, sp- spermalege. Ooh, that would be and something to rhyme with. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's actually this uh, pouch of uh, immune cells. Uh-huh. So she has like an external notch on her body and she kind of guides him to always stab in the same place. And those cells actually protect her from bacteria that are, you know, living on the outside of her body and the outside of his body. And that's how she has counteracted this over a long period of time, evolving this. What was the process of getting this to where it is now uh, off-Broadway? It took a while, right? It was worse than having bed bugs. <laughs> oh, yeah. When did, when, did, <laughs> when did you have that first meeting where you started writing together? Uh, March 2007. Okay. So this is seven years later, seven and a half years mm. later. And even when things go slowly, you know, they usually don't go this slowly. So why? Sometimes they do. Yeah. Uh, theater is, is all about collaboration and large groups of people getting together to do something. And when there's a lot of people involved, people need to be paid. And there's a lot of money involved at stake. So if you're an artist, you can sit in a hole and make a sculpture for two years. And then all you have to do is show it to somebody. There it is. But we have to actually mount this and have people invest in it and and put it together and throw it into a space and rent the theater and hire the lighting people in the it really all comes down to money and finding that person with money who believes in your show. We're very and, thankful that anyone has ever even seen this show. Yeah. I mean, and people have been, they, they were really embraced it back in 2008 when people didn't really know what bedbugs were. Right. It was a kind of a new thing. But then, you know, as we had been continuing to work on it and develop it and try to find producers and whatnot, the actual epidemic got really bad in 2009, 10, 11. And so people started to be more freaked out by the title. And by people, I mean producers and potential, you know, investors and whatnot. So and so were, it just they became... Were re- they were repelled by it? Because I think they, that... They, it, didn't, they were afraid at its commercial potential because they thought that audiences would be afraid of it. Oh, see, that's funny because I would think that there might be... 
there might be the idea that people, well, it would be uh, more top of mind for them and wanting to go out and get the catharsis of laughing at this That's thing what we that always thought. We them. always yeah. thought, I, we couldn't believe that there hadn't been a movie or anything in this time that somebody didn't already come up with this idea in some other form. But yeah, people were freaked out and we finally found a producer who absolutely believed in it. Yeah. And, that's why we're so Brooke if you had to let's say investors or potential Broadway investors came to you and say we want to make sure that they're going to be bed bugs around for a while before we invest in this what would you say I would say it's a pretty good bet that they are going to be around probably forever it was more of a more of an unusual thing that we are able to knock their numbers down at all with DDT there are no new insecticides coming on the market for them uh, it's hugely it costs like 256 million dollars in 10 years to create each new insecticide active ingredient and bed bugs are not the focus for that that doesn't mean that people aren't working that but most of that focus goes on agricultural pests and these larger money makers and whatever so it's it's pretty unlikely we might be able to control the numbers in certain situations but it's unlikely that we're ever going to completely get rid of them and not have any problems again it does strike me that you three are unique uh, along with a couple of trained dogs and exterminator companies having an inverse relationship with uh, the rise of bed bugs the more bed bugs the worse for the rest of us but kind of the better for you does that make us evil i don't know <laughs> well smart <laughs> So what's next for you, Paul and Fred? Lice the musical, Athlete's Foot, <laughs> a rock opera, <laughs> No, psoriasis. we're, we're going to move on from bugs and things like that, yeah. We have yeah. a lot of other disgusting ideas up our sleeves. Yeah. But, uh, we actually have uh, two other projects in the works that we've been but they'll developing be full of heart for two years. And plot. Yeah. That's, That's cool. Well. Yeah. Heart, plot, and maybe. And, and awesome rock musical yeah. theater. Well, I encourage you to scratch that itch. Thank you. Paul Leshen is the composer of Bed Bugs the Musical. Fred Sauter wrote the book and lyrics. And Brooke Burrell is coming out with a new book about Bed Bugs. It's called Infested. Thank you all. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. You think that you're safe because you're living in the first world. But they'll slip into your Samsonite suitcase or they'll travel in your purse, girl. From Washington Heights down to the Lower East Side From Jersey to Jamaica These days you can get practically anything you want on demand Like meatloaf, both the food and the entertainer, right? Via podcast, via meatloaf.com, just guessing or my podcast. You can listen when it's convenient for you. And yet there you are, still going to the post office. Statistics show that as I'm saying this, one of you is listening to this online at the post office. And if you're not the second person online, if you're towards the end, get the hell off the line. Or maybe you're about to go to the post office and it's like 425 and you're six minutes away. You're saying, does it close at 4.30 or 5? Why even ask the question? Listen to what I'm endorsing. It's Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right now from your desk with Stamps.com. Like real postage, official postage. You can buy it. You can print it. You can print it using your computer and printer. You can put it on any letter or any package. Unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. We have a promo code. The promo code is the gist. The gist unlocks a special offer. Unlike the post office after 4:30. I think 4:30. Here's the special offer. There's a no-risk trial offer plus a $110 bonus offer 
You get the digital scale that you plug right into your computer. You get up to $55 in free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in the gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel. The Times, Texas, messes. Liberal blog, The Daily Coast, this Sunday ran an article titled, Wendy Davis will break the status quo in Texas. Democrats will win statewide. In it, the author argues, Texas State Senator Wendy Davis is closing in on Attorney General Greg Abbott in the polls for the Texas governor's race, moving from an 18-point deficit to a 9-point deficit. The status quo is the status quo until it's not. Conventional wisdom is pundits dismissing the possibility of a strong Democratic performance at the top of the ticket in Texas because of the fallacy that Texas is a red state, a conservative state. Now, this could be dismissed as partisan wish fulfillment, coming as it does just a few lines above the appeal to Wendy Davis's campaign. Yes, click here to donate $3 to Wendy Davis. It's the sort of thing you'd see on ideologically driven blogs, right? But ho! Same day, New York Times. Op-ed by Richard Parker, ID'd as the author of the forthcoming book, Lone Star Nation, How Texas Will Transform America. He summarizes the Davis campaign until recently as a cowboy lost in the desert and then makes a turn. Among the experts, he writes, a conventional wisdom has set in. Miss Davis can't win. Republicans can't lose. And Texas won't change. Yet as summer has turned to fall, Miss Davis has entered new territory. Last week, a poll by the Texas Lyceum, a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational institution, showed that Ms. Davis has narrowed the gap to just nine points, and pundits around the state are talking about a new momentum behind her. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Nothing, nothing happened. That author grabbed a thin slice of quasi-evidence and pretended it was a turning point. Wendy Davis is going to lose, I predict. As every Democrat who has run statewide in Texas has lost for the last 20 years. And there have been a lot of statewide races in Texas. There's land commissioner, railroad commissioner, comptroller, agriculture commissioner, spittoon commissioner. All right, I made that one up. Texas has gone longer than any state in terms of never electing a Democrat, and I don't think that Wendy Davis is going to be the one to turn that tide. One poll showed a nine-point deficit, which, by the way, is still a significant deficit. It doesn't rebut every other poll taken this year, which is Wendy Davis trailing by an average of close to 13%. A week after the poll Richard Parker cherry-picked, there was another one that had her down by 11%. But the problem does not just lay with one op-ed writer. The New York Times seems to get into a regular habit of wildly overestimating Texas Democrats' chances. In 2012, the candidate was Ron Kirk, running for Senate. The Times wrote, In a state where Democrats are struggling to regain political viability in statewide elections, Mr. Kirk is determined to be an atypical candidate. So far, it seems to be working. After winning a Democratic runoff in April, Kirk is tied or ahead in early polls. He's led the Republican nominee, Attorney General John Cornyn, by eight points in one survey. Many observers had expected Mr. Cornyn, a protege of Karl Rove, the president's chief political advisor, to coast to an easy victory. So in the end, what happened? John Cornyn coasted to an easy victory, 55% to 43%. He beat Kirk by half a million votes. A few years later, 
Times headline, recession creates an opening for Democrat in Texas. Houston, a few months ago, Texas political consultants thought that a Democrat had about as much of a chance of winning statewide office as a donkey would have of winning the Kentucky Derby. Yet recent polls suggest Texas has a horse race for the governor's office. After all, the Democratic candidate, former Mayor Bill White of Texas, has pulled within striking distance of the incumbent Republican Rick Perry. Final result? Perry 55%, Bill White 42%. Perry won by 630,000 votes. A couple years ago, the New York Times ran a story via the Texas Tribune, so these are Texans who know about Texas, a thing by Ross Ramsey, who said of Democrats in his state, if this were high school football, we'd move the Texas Democrats into a lower league with smaller schools where they might be more competitive. I'd say if the New York Times were setting the point spread on those football games, they'd be bankrupt by now. Maybe it's not just the New York Times. Maybe the Modesto B has also serially overestimated Democratic chances in a state far removed from its own. I don't know. But I think what's behind these predictions are a few things. One, bias. Journalistic bias. Not toward Democrats. Well, towards Democrats a little bit. But I'm talking about towards a close race. It's a trap that so many news outlets fall into, seizing on even the smallest gain or rather arbitrary distinction like trailing only by double digits in one poll to play up a close race when a close race does not in fact exist. Two, Texas is a huge state. It's the second most populous state in the country. So there really are a lot of Democrats. The vote count, two million votes in, say, Bill White's case, while that's not even close to winning the governor's race. That'll get you elected governor in all but four or five states. So what that means is that there are a lot of Texas Democrats to complain that they're being undercovered, to eagerly eat up coverage of their chances, to subscribe to the New York Times and demand equal coverage, to go up to members of the media and say, hey, don't count us out. In states that are actually closer to purple than red, like Arizona or South Dakota, you don't get the sheer volume of Democrats. And lastly, there's this horrible fact to anyone who's ever tried to construct a compelling story. Conventional wisdom is usually right. That's why it's conventional. This ties in with the bias towards a close race. But the odds are that stories about someone beating the odds won't pan out. So no, I do not think Wendy Davis will win. I do think George P. Bush will be the next Texas Railroad Commissioner. I don't know if the Republicans will run the table as they have every time you cross the Red River since 1994. But I see no reason outside of wishing on a lone star to think these Democrats are anything other than Texas toast. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist, and she was her high school's mascot. She went to a fashion high school, and they were the fighting ascots. Each home game, she donned the outfit of Jenny, the somnambulant mule. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, also his high school mascot. He went to a science high school where he dressed as Bunsen and cheered on the burners and wondered why they were always down to the technical high school by 35 points at halftime. You can listen to the Just on SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We're also on Yo. Get the app, then subscribe to Podcast. When the show's ready, we'll yo ya. If you like the email version of that, sign up for a daily email. That'll come to your inbox when the show posts slate.com slash gist email our facebook is facebook.com slash slate gist twitter feed slate gist email us at the gist at slate.com unlike the other fanciful mascot creations which i ascribe to andy and andrea i really was my high school mascot that's true i was the oceanside sailor it meant i hung around the docks until 2 a.m and wound up propositioning prostitutes with adam's apples i think it was worth an extra three points a game you're welcome girls badminton team thanks for listening